Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. In her searing memoir, Hunger, Roxane Gay writes, quote, There's no shelter or safety or escape from the cruel stares and comments, the too small seats, the too small everything for your too big body, unquote. You can have a drinking problem and maybe people won't know. And perhaps you can hide your serial infidelity. But when you are fat, there's nowhere to hide. I'm Elliot Malamut. And in this episode of Crossing the Sea, a podcast about Judaism and mental health, I talk with my colleague Yossi Saberman about overeating fat shame, and dignity. Does Judaism, with its ritual meals and kiddushes, facilitate gaining weight? And do men have it easier in a big body than women do? Can we value people for more than their bodies? Or is fat all we see? Yossi spoke to me from his home in Toronto. Yossi, I'm interested in your earliest associations with food. When did you realize that food was a a very important component of your life? Did you have a sense that you were overeating at a young age or that there was something maybe unusual about your food habits or did it just seem normal in the life you were living? I didn't really know anything about, well, I didn't really sense that something was wrong with food until I was eight years old. And I went away with my best friend, Akiva Wagner, who's now a Rosh Hashiva at Chabad in Toronto. And we went to Camp Gan Yisrael which was in Michigan, and his father drove us in his big, huge van. And something really strange happened. I was lonely. I was afraid to be on my own. Things at home were always challenging. There was a very high expectation level about everything. And I guess the the homesickness got to me, and I started feeling a sense of overwhelming anxiety, which translated itself into asthma, where I felt like I couldn't breathe. But then there was so much food available to me. And I remember sitting down at these tables, these Formica top tables, loaded with mashed potatoes and chicken and food, more food than I'd ever seen in a home with, at that time, we probably had, I probably had five siblings. It was just unending. You could eat as absolutely much as you want. There was nobody there going to tell you what it was. So what happened was I ended up feeling so stuffed and I couldn't breathe. And all I could do was go lie down on my bed and not move. And it was sort of like, without knowing what it was, it was sort of like a a catatonic stuffedness, or I felt so full that I was stoned, so to speak. And at that moment, that was my first introduction to food as I need to soothe myself. But over time, I became more and more aware of what was happening and what was going on. And I started to realize that when I ate that much, sometimes it helped me feel better. And in terms of how things went in camp, I was very homesick, but I remember that moment when my parents came to visit and and then they left and I both wanted to 
run after the car, beg them to take me home. At the same time, I knew that I was so shamed that I felt this need to go home. And it was complicated because, you know, being in camp alone, I was a bedwetter. And being a bedwetter in camp is a very shameful thing. There, there were, there was a counselor there I'll never forget who, who, who sort of protected me. But it's a horrible thing to be eight years old or whatever and feel the need to be protected because people make fun of you and everyone looks at you in camp and everyone knows, oh, he's a bedwetter. Oh, he smells. Oh, 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 whatever. And wake up in the morning and have people make comments and so on. So all these things added to this need for some form of protection, and I found it in food. Ironically, color war that year was a war between milk and meat, apparently, or something like that. And I remember being on the salami team, which was really good because we got to eat all that salami. But as time went on, so now I'm 8, now I'm 10, and I'm starting to realize that food is a distraction. And it's also food, I realize, is something that causes a challenge between me and my family because my father would take me for walks and beg me to eat differently and try to get me to to eat healthier. And the problem wasn't that I didn't listen to what he said or, and I didn't want to look like he named a certain guy and who's now some hugely prominent rabbi, both physically and emotionally prominent, you know? And he said, do you want to look like him? You want to look like a fat barrel? The problem was I didn't have the, the words to say, but I'm lonely, but I'm sad, but I, but I'm, I'm, I'm hurt. And I feel that nobody loves me. And I feel that I'm being judged and I feel that I can never live up to expectations. And, and I really wanted to say, well, what am I going to fill the hole with? I needed that food. And it wasn't like they were saying, give up food and we'll, we'll, we'll spend time. Well, I'll, I'll have dinner with you once a week, or we'll go do some father son things. It was more like, just do the right thing or else you're going to be sick. As time went on, I uh, I started to learn the nuance of compulsive eating, but that didn't happen for quite a while. So the answer is, this is when I started, and it took me many years before I started to pick up the power of food almost in its form like, like a drug. So you're asserting actually quite emphatically that hunger is almost the least of it. Right, that you're you're eating driven by reasons other than hunger, stress, sadness, need for self comfort. I, I wanted to ask you, you kind of alluded to it, but I wonder if you could expand to it whether, you know, so many of your connections to your early experiences are being part of a ultra orthodox Haredi world that have lots of rules and maybe going to schools that you don't like or you didn't choose necessarily. Do you feel that those things, the structure of the Orthodox life you were living, were contributors to your eating issues? Well, in, in a sense, if food is something that you're that's going to end up being something that you use, so to speak, well, living in that world on ways that may surprise you were very, very powerful. I'll, I'll never forget. And I can't, I, I honestly, I would ask around, I, I don't know anyone else in the world that's been through this. Maybe there is someone who's experienced this, but imagine getting beaten by someone who's not your parent, by a rabbi in your school for violating a minhag, a tradition, which is not to eat fish and 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 milk together. There's a there's a very popular tradition comes out of the Talmud not to eat fish and meat together because it's considered dangerous. But the prohibition on eating milk and fish together is is a, pretty much considered a Hasidic tradition, not not in not in place in my world, which was the Lithuanian yeshiva world. And this guy, he was Israeli. Hasidic, was offended that I love tuna 
with cottage cheese sandwiches. And whenever he, literally, whenever he'd see me eating it, he would try to hit me. He would like assault me. He would try to take my sandwich away. So the identification of the food abuse, but I, I, you know, I understand if I was eating pork, you come after me, but you come after me for a min hug, for a tradition. And the, the thing about the food was, and the complication of it was, I was never breakfast that I ate was not enough food for me. I ate early in the morning. We were up 7.30 for prayers. So I ate my lunch or often ate some of my lunch at breakfast. And that's when he would see me eating my lunch. So in a way, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or self-fulfilling sense of guilt where you're eating what you're not supposed to be eating. Somebody comes and beats you up for eating what you're not supposed to be eating, whether they're right or wrong. You were beaten up for your food and it creates the sense of hiding. I need to hide and eat my food so nobody knows. And then food becomes your, your quiet friend. But then, of course, you go to shul, you go to Shabbat, you go to every event and there's oodles of food. There were groaning tables. There was a the, the weddings that would have the buffet before the wedding where you could eat. And I could literally, I recall being stuffed to the point where I could barely move, almost catatonic. And I remember Shabbat being a time when you'd sit and you'd eat and it would be wonderful and you engage and eat a heavy carb meal, cholent, kugel and challah. And then you get to go to sleep for hours on end. And I remember waking up Shabbat afternoon feeling completely disconnected from reality. It was sort of like I was pulled out of the deepest sleep possible because sure, because I slept very deeply because of what was happening. And that became a rhythm in which you always knew that you could get food. And of course, these things about food and people hiding and I, and, and of course, whenever you try to step out of your line and you got hurt for it, it sort of, we created a hiding relationship with food. For example, I remember going to my cousin's wedding and we were told explicitly, do not eat from the food. The caterer is not kosher enough for, for Lakewood Kolel, where they are not kosher enough. And I went and the mashkiach there, the kosher supervisor, was loved me, come inside, Yossi, come here, pitch your cheeks, come eat something. No, I can't eat. No, you have to eat. Sit, get him a plate. Sit him in the kitchen. I'm eating the food and I'm happy because I love this food. And I can't believe. And my father finds out because of course he rushes over to my father when he comes to the wedding and says, your son is such a sweet boy. And I gave him dinner. And I think I got assaulted for that. I don't know. I, I don't remember. And not to disparage my my parents, they they were they were living in their their world, and these are the rules in their world. And I and yet again, food food was a trigger. It was something that violated norms. It 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 made me hide. It made me feel insecure. And of course, that led to me not being able to hide the fact that I'm a big guy, and even as a kid, a big guy. And you couldn't hide the reality that you were overeating. You just couldn't hide it. And it was a constant. You're suggesting, right, you're suggesting that Shabbat and I guess Yom Tov also are that sort of enormous emphasis on meals, in a sense, encourages overeating, would you say? Well, you know, if my sister made a choice in her life not to overeat, and she's stuck by it, and she exercises, and she just does not overeat. It encourages overeating for people who overeat. On the other hand, I've, I'm not an alcoholic. I have no interest in alcohol. I'll have a taste once in a while. It doesn't do anything for me. There's always scotch there. It, it never encouraged me to be an alcoholic, but if I was inclined, or I needed that, or I did, there's no question about it. So I wouldn't use the word encouraged, but I would certainly say facilitates, if that's your genre. Right, but certainly at an Orthodox Shabbat, nobody's smoking weed. 
So it, it, you know, that's not happening, but alcohol, food. Yeah. If that's your thing. But then again, there, there, we could also argue that obsessiveness with saying every word in the prayers during your meal is another form of, of challenge where you're, you're so fixated on that. But body issues as time went on became more and more challenging for me because I had another rabbi in Toronto. I, I, he used to be conservative in the conservative world and became ultra orthodox and he was abusive to me. He, he would try to pinch my, my nipples and squeeze my breast to tell me how fat I was. And he, that, he literally abused me. Whenever he saw me, he would try to grab my body and say, you fat, you're, 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 you're bigger breasts than my wife does. And this was a, a horrible human being, obviously, who, you know, he was, he was a fringe dude, but he styled himself as part of that orthodox world, the, the part of the Orthodox world where you, you're a walk-in, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you weren't invited, you showed up, you became part of it, you were integral to some form of the world, but you didn't earn it because you weren't a mensch. And later on, many, many years later, I felt very vindicated when I was doing a, a funeral and he was at the cemetery doing something else and he told me about a conservative rabbi who died a very painful and sad death and he said, you know, that's what happens to conservative rabbis. You should you should consider being orthodox again. I said to myself, you've been abusing me since I've been a kid. And now that you're not abusing me about my body or abusing me about my faith or my tradition, whatever. So at first I said, you know, I'm not really a conservative rabbi in the class. And then I realized this guy is just abusive. And it, the vindication was, is that it was no longer about my body. He was just that person. So that way it, it helped. But yeah, body, food, hiding, certainly the life the lifestyle of our Jewish world made overeating possible, or or at least public overeating possible, for sure. Right. So can you talk to me a little bit about when you grew older? What was your uh, feelings about your appearance at that point? Did you begin to embrace it? Did you feel self-conscious as you became a teenager and a young adult and further? How did you begin to think about it at that point? You mean food or, or body or both? Both. As I aged, I became very self-conscious about my body. I had, you know, a large chest, so I felt uncomfortable going swimming. I'm looking at all these guys going swimming with me who are flat, and I've got, like, sort of moobs, as they call them, you know, man boobs. And, you know, it was it was very uncomfortable. And the may have been partially I felt uncomfortable. The part, other problem was I felt guilty, and I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. There was nobody I could say, because if I went and said, I feel, un I feel conscious, you know, self-conscious about my body, they'd say, so stop eating. And that still wouldn't solve the problem. There was a hole, there was an emptiness. And then for a little while, I went through a lot of trauma and challenges at home. I, I left home. I, you know, things were not very good there and food just became a soother. But the problem was when I wasn't living at home, I couldn't afford a lot. And I mean, there were, there were months and months that went on where I literally ate, ate uh, brown rice and, and green pea soup. You know, that's what I ate. And when, when I could get real food, my relationship was totally destroyed because real food just meant get as much as you can and eat as much as you can as soon as possible. I remember going off to yeshiva and getting my weekly allowance or whatever and then literally blowing it all on, on, on junk food because it was like a hit. And, of course, my body image got worse you know, I felt more self-conscious. Uh, I felt like my pants would always be tearing and I felt that nothing would fit right. And I felt that I would grow out of clothing. And I bought the clothing that I bought was always like the second rate. I remember going down to Spadina where the jobbers were, which is like the wholesale section. And then the guy sitting at the front 
took one look at me and my mother and goes, yeah, take the kid down to the husky section, okay, downstairs. And downstairs in the husky section, you get choices of plaid, corduroy, or ugly, right? Those are your three choices. So I'd end up with a suit with a brown with an orange stripe. My, listen, and to, I'm, I'm, I'm joking about it. My mother always tried to get me blue suit, but my friends would be wearing double-breasted blue with pinstripes, and I'd be wearing something, you know, off to the side because you're fat, you know, you're last, uh, and it's more expensive, and that's reality, and, and all this adds up. Then I didn't have a normal sexual coming of age because the world I lived in didn't really address it. There was very little conversation about it. So then you start asking yourself, what is attractive? What could possibly be attractive about a body that I think is fat and overweight? And I look at myself in the mirror and all I see is, is guilt and, and sadness and anger and hurt and, and hiding my feelings. And I see it all in my body. And how do you Imagine anybody could be attracted to someone who is not attractive to themselves. And it really, it really made it very hard for me to imagine what a normal relationship would be. You know, forget the sexual side of it initially, just the attraction side of it. And then, silly me, I look back now at what I looked like then and how much thinner I was then. And yet I thought I was grotesquely overweight. And there's this inverse relationship where now in my life, I, I'm not surprised that people find me attractive because I presume that there's much more to it than just your physical shape. At the same time, then I couldn't ever imagine being anything other than a six pack and being attractive, but yet people were attracted to me. Girls wanted to go out and, and, and I had no idea what they saw in me. And how could I have ever imagined having a healthy, normal relationship when I didn't know what was attractive about me? And I, I, I had this, in my later years, I came up with, I mean, the joke that's in my head is I came up with sermons to deal with my, my traumas. So I gave a sermon, you know, a talk and whatever, whenever I had an opportunity to talk about sex, love, and marriage. And one of the talks was called Dating with Tight Pants, where you go out on a date and you wear pants that are, I don't know, two sizes too small for you. And you can barely breathe. Maybe you wear a sweater that covers the fact that your button's not closed, only your zipper is. And I assume, you know, like you say goodnight and go home and you get home and you've got like a red line around your body and finally you can let your breath out. And then you say to yourself, what if she liked me? What if she wanted to come home with me? Like, who am I fooling? I, I can't act like I'm a, like I'm a size 50 when I'm a size 54. I, cause other, I don't fit into my pants. I can't breathe. I can hardly bend over. Sure, for a two-hour date, that works, but it doesn't work for a lifetime. So I ended up in Overeaters Anonymous. Overeaters Anonymous is a place where you, you through 12-step program, you, you turn over your, higher, your, your, your needs to your higher power, whoever that be. It's not a Christian thing. It's really just it's a self-help mantra-based thing. You listen to other people's experiences. You get a sponsor who you can call and talk about your fears. I mean, all these things were what I really needed. I needed someone to talk to. I needed to be like with like-minded people. I needed to be with others who suffered with food and body. And, and to my shock and amazement, there were people bigger than me. And there were people who were supermodels sitting next in the same class because it turned out issues is not about how much you eat in the, in the sense that you stuff yourself. It's about the relationship with food, which is always based on a relationship with something else, your father, your cousin, your people who were raped, people who were hurt. And food, I start to realize, is not just about food. It's also about, and it is about everything. And then I understood myself. 
And the problem was that I didn't stay with it long enough because when I went through my life traumas, whatever, relationships, uh, divorce, separation, I now understood food. And now food was like heroin because now you could inject yourself just with the right amount of stuff that would take care of your need. So if you if you really knew what you're doing and you're an overeater, not someone who's an undereater, if that's your jam, you could eat the right amount of protein with the right amount of starch, with the right amount of fat, with the right amount of sugar and be a zombie for two days. And here's the, here's the trick. People wonder, why would you do that to yourself? And I'd wonder, but there's this weird thing that happens when you're stoned on food that you actually tell yourself the story. This is the last time I'm taking care of this need right now, but I'm going to get out of this bed and I'm going to start exercising and I will be able to get to my goal. I will become the person I want. What's going on right now is really, it's the warm feeling of I've hit bottom. I'm at my end, but the good news is tomorrow's a new day and I'm going to be successful. And for whatever reason, that was, that was a myth and a, and a, a legend that I learned how to tell myself every time. And of course, you now have two reasons to get into that state. One is to avoid the present. And the second one is to inject yourself hope for the future so you don't kill yourself because of all the struggles you're going through. And suicide was not something that was present in my life in terms of an active thing, but there was certainly the constant fear of dying from overeating. So there is a certain sense of, I'm killing myself. And if I die from a heart attack because I overate, because my, I know my uncle died young, my, my father's, my father's brother died very young and he was very overweight and this was part of our thing. So it means every mouthful you put in your body was essentially a choice to possibly die young. So everything about food became fraught with guilt, religion. Of course, I, I have to add in that when you start adding in non-kosher food, you just add a whole new layer to it and you add a whole new layer to the hiding that goes along with food and the shaming that goes along with food. And what if I get caught going along with food. And what if my parents found out? And what if other people knew? And and then being a rabbi and making my own choice about what kind of rabbi I want to be. And then people see me in a in a restaurant in Florida that and I ordered a pizza that was dairy and but and you shouldn't Rabbi, a man like you shouldn't be in a place like this and and everything becomes fraught. And food, like we say in Overeaters Anonymous, is not like alcohol. We can't live without it. So we're always in a relationship with food, and then you go back the full cycle of what a Jewish event looks like. It's always connected to food. You know, they say that a great Jewish holiday is let's design a menu and attach a historical event to it. You know, so, and that's truly what it is. And you think about it, everything is either about eating or not eating. And so the answer is, in large, is, yeah, food is an addiction. Food is an excuse. Food is... It's actually the act of eating is a form of form of prayer where you're actually with every mouthful engaging in a conversation with yourself about everything that has hurt you and everything that is possible in your life. There's not a, there's not a single mouthful that you put in there that you go, it's too much, it's too little. It's the right thing, it's the wrong thing. It's killing you, it's not killing you. You're, you're, you're setting a good example, you're not setting a good example. And then I have a child. She's eight years old. I want to set a good example for her. I have to start talking about the fact that I'm overweight and it's not healthy. I don't want her to be unhealthy. I don't want her to look at me and say, you're eating too much or you're eating the wrong thing. Do I want to hide in front of my child? Do I want to start sneaking food when my kid's around? Do I feel terrible that I'm in this state where I'm overweight and I have to raise a child and tell her, don't do as I do 
do as I say? No. So again, now there's a new cycle that is being promulgated by food. And what's the answer to it? Well, the answer is talk to your doctor that you can give you an injection. You'll see, you know, you'll, you'll start losing weight and that's all. I mean, at your age, that's, that's what you can do. Can I eat less? It will help. Can I exercise? It will help. Will I die young? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, then of course your friends say, you'll see, you know, there's no fat people in, in old age homes. And I wake up every morning and think maybe today's a day that I'll start ending this lifelong battle. And truth is, it's just another day. It's another day of, of speaking my truth with every mouthful of food that I eat. Could you address a little bit further? You mentioned it about being judged as a rabbi, and I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between that and your and your appearance, because you've been an extremely successful and beloved pulpit rabbi for many years, to which I can attest personally. So I want to ask you a few things here. Do you think that rabbis get judged on appearance, first of all? And, you know, do you think that there's a relationship between a culture which is so obsessed with beauty and the focus on fat? So when people looked at you as a rabbi, were they judging how you looked? What was your impression? So it's interesting. Um, I'd say about 20 years ago when I got the, the pulpit that I was in for 22 years, I had a crisis in which I said to my therapist, I said, I don't feel right being a spiritual leader and being overweight. And basically, it's like going to a doctor who smokes tells you not to smoke. And I had to work through that. I had to work through it. I had to come to terms with the fact that I'm my life is a challenge, but everything else that I do should not be put aside. But then at the same time, I would never tell anyone, admonish anyone about their body because it's not my place. And I felt that in some ways to be a true leader, you have to be exemplary in every way. And I went through that. I went through that crisis of trying to be exemplary in every way, a combination of holier than thou, thinner than thou, smarter than thou, perfecter than thou. Like, But then I settled on, I'll just be me. So I dealt with that. That, that did strike me. And I, I remember years ago, I heard from a friend who was part of a, an interview that I did before I went to Beth Torah. The interview was at another synagogue, and he and, and they and they chose not to hire me in Toronto. And that was okay. I mean, you know, I didn't expect it, w- it would have been a nice thing if I got hired, but I got the job subsequently. And they told me that the reason I didn't get the job was because they, they didn't like my ordination. It was private. It wasn't, it wasn't good enough. Whatever. But years later, the guy, one of the guys that was involved... Actually, he was, he was the cantor in the synagogue. What he, de- what he didn't know was that the first thing they, the, the guy that brought me in for the interview said, Yossi, if you get this job, I'm just letting you know the first thing you're going to have to do is fire the cantor. And I said, I don't want to fire anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm a novice. I just, I, I had two years under my belt. He said, no, no, that's what you're going to have to do. I said, that's ridiculous. In the end, I didn't get the job. Years later, I'm working with this cantor at a wedding, and he says, by the way, the reason you never got the job had nothing to do with your ordination. had to do because they didn't want a fat rabbi. They wanted a good-looking rabbi. He says, you're good-looking, but you're fat. And whatever, I, I I haven't given that too much thought. But over time, being a rabbi has also given me a sense of people feeling close enough to me to say things to me that I don't know if they'd say to strangers. Women who found me very attractive. Women who, when I was single, wanted to date me. It's it's not uncommon that people have affairs, but I'm not saying that's what happened. But what I'm saying is people would, would, would feel intimate and close and say, I find you very attractive. And, you know, just to be very clear with the world, it's not just women. It's men, too. Sometimes I didn't pick up on it. Sometimes, but it's not like I'm looking for it. Because I actually don't really believe it's true. It's very, very hard for me 
to feel attractive. I don't know whether if I was thin, I would feel attractive because I don't know if I'd be 10 pounds thinner, would I feel great? Would I feel great if I was 50 pounds or 100 pounds thinner? Would it help? Would I live longer? Probably. Would I feel better? I don't know. What Could I weigh 120 and feel better? I, at, at what point will I feel good? Because I know that it's about what's internal. And leading a congregation, I was high, I was very sensitive to the fact that I, I felt always that it was a little bit of apologetics, where I was always apologizing in some way or another, whether through my humor or self-deprecation, that I was not as healthy as I should be as a leader. I should be doing better, but I didn't. And there were people who tried to give me advice. They tried to suggest uh, that I go for health, all kinds of counseling, whatever. Well, now the pulpit part of my life is over. And I'm sure that these kinds of things happen all the time where people call you and try to offer you advice and they look at you and they really like you. But I've learned, I've learned that attraction is not about weight. I've learned that when people try to help you, it's about love mostly, unless they're selling you a product. But I've also learned that like anything important in life, this doesn't happen overnight and may never happen. I don't know. I mean, maybe talking to you will be very helpful for me. I think it probably will be. Do you think there's a, you're talking about attractiveness in relationship to weight. And I'm curious about whether you think there's a kind of gender disparity. A long time ago, I can't even remember, it's probably 1980. I remember reading a book, it was called Fat is a Feminist Issue by this psychiatrist named Susie Orbach. And she was talking about how women's bodies were, you know, scrutinized all the time and sexualized in really unhealthy ways. And I'm, I'm wondering how this relates to the culture you grew up in, in contemporary Orthodox culture, but even in just Jewish culture. There's a primacy on getting married, starting a family. Do you think it, it's actually easier to be overweight as a man than as a woman because women are so judged so often on appearance? So with, within, certainly within the ultra-Orthodox community, size zero is preferred. Thin, rich, gorgeous, and and there's a backlash. There's there's those now who say that when you start dating, you shouldn't see pictures of the person you're in. You're going you're going to meet, right? There's no doubt that it's become an obsession with thin is beautiful. That's the moment. There's no question about it, and there's no question about it in terms of what's going on in all communities. Here's the issue, and I'm it's a true confession. There's things I'm attracted to and things I'm not attracted to. I've been sensitized to thin is beautiful. It's a lot of work to see beyond that. Just because I'm big doesn't mean I look at everyone who's big and go, I like that. I don't. But at the same time, no longer you're beautiful and you're not. It's you're beautiful and I'm attracted to it. And you're beautiful and I'm not attracted to it. And that could be for anything, color, race, shape, size, height, face. But the idea that there's there's one right way and one wrong way, uh, I mean, we know that the, the shidduch world, the, the dating world and ultra-orthodoxy is in absolute turmoil because the, there's, there's that obsession. I would argue that they're no different. It's, ironically, they're no different than the most hedonistic cultures out there who are obsessed with six packs and, and tans and wealth and, 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 and boobs and, you know, and, and, and hips. And it's, 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 it's awful how synchronized that is. At the same time, I have to believe that there's a, a higher degree of overeating in the Orthodox world because it's a private, way to resolve a lot of pain. I've seen it myself. I've seen what goes on in families, and it's something that is not really spoken about or 
It's deemed to be something you have to deal with. And I don't know, and I'm not an expert, I don't know what the mindset of people is who have wives who were once thin and are now overweight, because it is absolutely clear that men in the in, in those worlds can be pretty much whatever size they need to be, and it's totally acceptable. But if your wife is not, you know, slim and tender and, and pretty, you're going to harass her until she is. And I have family who have done that to their family, where they they mercilessly persecute them to shame them into not eating and being thin and retaining their their, their body shape. And and you can't apply that to everyone. It's not all. It's not everybody in the community. But there certainly is a question mark about why is it okay for men to look the way they do, but women it's not. And it's a very hard thing. I, I definitely have seen a trend in which people are feeling better about their bodies, or at least, even if they're not feeling better about them, just putting themselves out there. And there is a, a definite focus on body pride, you know, where people who ridiculously different than the image of a bikini woman, they're a hundred pounds heavier than what the bikini body was meant to look like. And they're wearing their bikini and they're doing it their way. And, you know, men wearing Speedos who Speedo disappears. They're so big, you know, you don't see anything. The reality of the story is, is that people don't care as much. Part of that has helped me. I don't care as much. All I care about now is remaining healthy. I, I don't care whether you like the way I look. And if someone were to say they're not attracted to me because of my size, I'd say, well, it's really too bad. You're missing out on a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of good Yossi stuff that is available to you if you ignore ignore me. So, yes, I think we live in a world in which beautiful is still thin, and I think it's a tragedy because there's so many people who are hiding. They're hiding in their bodies. They're hiding in their food. They're hiding in, in, in ways that they have no control over. They cannot change the way other people perceive them. And there isn't really a good mechanism other than real hard work to change the way you feel about yourself. But once you feel about way differently about yourself, here's the really interesting thing. A mirror tells you what you look like, but your mind tells the mirror what you look like. If you look at yourself having exercised for a week, even if you haven't lost a pound, you'll you'll see yourself as different. I remember meeting people. I remember dating a woman. Well, whatever dating meant in in days of deep uh, insecurity, who was a soap, she worked as an actress on a soap opera, not in Canada. And we met at Overeaters Anonymous. And I remember her looking at herself in the mirror, talking about every flaw and every part of her body and everything. Eventually, she went on to get plastic surgery. And she's, she's still the same size or thinner. And she went and fixed it all. But she were, were mortal enemies. And when she had a better day, she looked good. When she had a terrible day, she looked awful. And I, I learned the same thing. I could look in the mirror on a day that I've eaten well and, and slept better and, you know, and gone for a walk and done what I want to do and look in the mirror and go, hmm, nishkeferlach, not bad. You're, you know, you're starting. This is good. And then you could have a terrible day. You look in the mirror and you see, you know, Shrek. That's what it looks like. And there's a huge, huge amount of mind work that has to go into it. And it's no different than the perception of what is fashionable and what is attractive. And yeah, is fat a feminist issue? Yeah, fat is a feminist issue, unless you're a man who's fat and nobody really wants to talk to you about it. Because for men, it's more okay. Well, guess what? It's not more okay for men. It's as horrible for a man to be over overweight and stuck in their body as it is for a woman. The difference is like, you don't get as much sympathy. So 
I mean, that's one of the, the great things about our society now is that people are talking about things. We're talking about it now. Would we have had this conversation 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Who knows? But, and I'm, I'm not uncomfortable talking about any of it. I think that it's far more liberating to be, to acknowledge that I, like everyone else, has something. The difference is I can't fully hide what I have because it, you may not know why I have it, but you know what I got. Whereas people can hide what they have and you don't even know that they have anything. So in some ways, I'm a bit of a billboard that says something is up. And if people were more honest, we could have a great conversation about it. So that's the difference. I, I, I just don't want to hide it. And guess what? I don't have a choice. I remember I was in a supermarket once and this little kid came up to me and said, Hey, mister, you're really fat. And I said, Shh, it's a secret. Don't tell anyone. Well, I'm glad you've shared with us. And just want to say from my point of view, there's an awful lot of good yussies. Let's put it that way. Thanks for being with me. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you for knowing it. Thanks for having me. According to a 2019 report by the British Psychological Society, weight increases cannot simply be attributed to, quote, an individual's lack of willpower, unquote. There are genetic factors as well as the role of high levels of stress, including major life challenges and trauma. Yossi Saberman is frank about his desire to gain body health, but at the same time has lifelong struggles with achieving that end. Judaism is rife with opportunities to eat, but Yossi was candid about not blaming a religious lifestyle for overeating. If you have that inclination, certainly Jewish life will provide you with many occasions in which to eat, just as it will if you're inclined to get drunk. In the end, as in his darkly funny retort to a kid who is brutally labeling him, this is one area where it's hard to keep a secret. Weight is telling you something's up. I'm Elliot Malamut, and this has been Crossing the Sea. Please send us your comments about this podcast at www.livingjewishly.org and check our website for past podcasts and episodes in this series. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.